0: Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good evening. What a difference a year makes. Ash Wednesday of 2020 was February 26th. And I doubt many of us here and online thought what we've experienced over the past 11 months would be as severe and as life-changing as it has been. Nevertheless, God has been gracious and merciful to us. He has continued to provide and watch over us as we make our way back to normal and as we look forward to the day when we are again all together and not needing to follow so many protocols and restrictions. As we have experienced every other big day on the church calendar, it is only fitting that we also get the opportunity to do Ash Wednesday in a new and creative way. I never thought I would get the chance to wipe a Q-tip across your foreheads, and I'm excited for that chance. Might catch an eye, right? I can't wait to see the pictures on social media. But first, let's turn to God's word. Whenever I want to feel good about myself, mainly because I know I should be in some sense ashamed of myself, I turn to the pages of the Bible where God's people, Israel, or Jesus' main followers, the 12 disciples, are being chastised. I read the varying passages with a smug sense of self-vindication. I admit that I am bad. But I'm not as bad as the idolatrous Israelites or faithless disciples. I make my mistakes, but I'm not on the verge of being taken into captivity, whatever that would look like in the 21st century. Nor am I in danger of being scolded by my Lord. Surely I've got a leg up on these two groups. I must be doing something, perhaps many things better than they. But alas, I am brought back to reality In my attempts to justify my own shortcomings, my own failures, my own sin, I carefully read the accounts meant to puff me up only to catch a real and profound glimpse of myself in each story, rebuke, and character. Instead of seeing myself above them and more righteous than they were, I only see my sinful self in them. And thus I must cry out with them and so many others, Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner. Our reading in Isaiah serves as a prime example of what is ultimately not a unique condition limited to the rebellious covenant people of God, but a condition that afflicts all of humanity. As we explore the words of Isaiah 58, a bit of context is in order. Our passage in Isaiah 58 is situated in a section of prophecies which Old Testament scholar John Oswalt notes emphasizes the failures of humanity to deliver itself or replicate the divine character, especially as it relates to promoting social righteousness. However, Isaiah does give glimpses of God's empowerment through his spirit in chapters 57 and 59. These glimpses highlight the hope that humanity will one day be as it was intended, indeed created to be in the end. By the grace and power of God. In the opening verse of chapter 58, God commands Isaiah to declare Israel's transgressions and sins against God. The charges are are to be declared fully and boldly. God tells him not to hold back and to lift up his voice like a trumpet. I like how the NIV states it shout it aloud, do not hold back. Isaiah is to use his voice like a trumpet in calling Israel to account. This is not a quiet and private rebuke, but a radical and open rebuke of God's people. In verse 2, Isaiah uses two distinct terms to describe Israel's condition before God, transgressions and sins. Now, the Hebrew term for transgressions is pesha. It refers to the way people violate the trust of others. It is used to describe the betrayal of trust within a relationship built on mutual trust. Because there are many different types of relationships, many different behaviors can be called Pesha. In the Old Testament, Pesha was used to characterize one nation breaking treaty with another nation. It was used to differentiate theft. If a person stole from a stranger's home, that was considered robbery. But if a person stole from a neighbor's home, well, that's Pesha. Because neighbors live in a context and relationship of mutual trust. This can be clearly seen in the account of Jacob fleeing from his uncle Laban. As Laban chases him down to accuse him of stealing his idol statues and searches belongings only to come up empty, Jacob asks, What is my Pesha? Or how have I violated your trust? Ironically, it wasn't Jacob that committed Pesha against Laban, but it was Jacob's wife Rachel, Laban's own daughter, who stole the idol statues. To be sure, Pesha happened just not by the hand of Jacob. So simply we can define Pesha or transgression as one person or group violating a relationship of trust with another. It's commonly used in the Bible because the Bible is essentially one long story about a broken relationship between God and the Israelites. We can recall how even on Sinai, as God was making his covenant with Moses and Israel, the young nation was quick to violate the terms and rebel. This betrayal was the primary message of the prophets. They consistently called out Israel's betrayal against God and called for Israel to repent and turn back to God in order to restore the relationship of trust. However, Israel's heart was hard and repentance was not going to take place. Now the Hebrew ser- the Hebrew term for sin is chata and it carries the idea of failing or missing the goal along with the idea of moral failure. And if you crystallize those concepts, you can say it's a failure to meet your goal. For Israel, that meant failing to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. This can be seen in the Ten Commandments. The first half show the way to fail at honoring God, while the second half show the way to fail at honoring other humans. This combination highlights how failure to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. Because of humanity being created in God's image and likeness, sin, or chata, against people, is ultimately sin against God. We see this in the account of Joseph being propositioned by Potiphar's wife. When she tries to entice him, he replies, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph rightly saw his offense against Potiphar more as an offense against God. Personally, I tend to view sin as a failure to be truly human, a corruption of humanity, if you prefer. Sin at its core is a, failure, is a failure of humanity to be fully human as God created us to be in the beginning. What we often see in the Bible is the irony that the very people who, who were experiencing this condition of sin did not think they were failing at anything. If they had been asked about their relationship with God, in contemporary terms, they would have said, I'm all good. They had deceived themselves into defending their bad decisions as good ones. Their tendency towards self-deception was rooted in their own desires and selfish urges that told them to act for their own benefit at the expense of others, ultimately leading to a chain reaction of relational breakdown. I wonder if we can identify, whether individually or corporately, with sinful Israel— Where do our selfish urges and desires lead us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others? What relationships in our own lives have broken down? How are we culpable for the breakdown? So often we teach or are taught to emulate those we read about in the Bible. However, that can have disastrous consequences. There are plenty of characters and events that we would never want to teach others to emulate. Rather than always looking towards imitation of biblical characters, we should seek to see ourselves in them. More might be gained by recognizing the cyclical nature of humanity and its proclivity towards self-destruction than by trying to figure out which giants in our life we are to slay. As we continue in Isaiah 58, we see a great deal of irony in God's declaration that his people seek him daily and delight to know his ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God. The words of the prophets throughout the entire Old Testament describe how God's people did not seek him and did not seek his ways, but they played the harlot and embraced those things that took them away from God and his ways. Isaiah says as much as he describes the sin of God's people in the opening chapters of his book when he declares how the unfaithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Everyone loves a bribe, and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. It's important to note that the unfaithfulness re- referenced here is specified as social abuse, exploitation, and violence against one's neighbor all of these violating God's moral order for the community of his people. And yet again, I wonder if we can identify with these words in our own context today. Where are acts of social abuse, exploitation, and violence against our neighbors taking place? How do we participate in systems that continue to keep people oppressed and on the margins? Are we truly on the side of justice and freedom when we turn a deaf ear to so many crying out for justice and equality? Now, if Isaiah's words in his opening chapter weren't enough to warrant judgment, he brings more against Israel. In chapter 57, just before our reading, he declares how they offered their worship to the pagan gods of foreign nations. He says, You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. They, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. This gives us a clear picture of just how far God's people had fallen. The worship that they were that they were to offer only to Yahweh, they offered to pagan gods, even offering their children as sacrifices to these gods. And yet they thought they were still in good standing with Yahweh. Through his covenant, God gave himself to Israel as a husband gives himself to his wife. But Israel would not do the same. Instead, Israel was unfaithful to God. Israel rejected God and his commands on how to treat others. And Israel rejected God's commands on how to worship him and him alone. This is the backdrop for Isaiah's words and even Jesus' words in our gospel reading about true and false worship. The response by God's people is telling. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God's people were so blinded by their sinful ways, they seriously thought that keeping the mere outward form of worship would keep their relationship and covenant with God intact. Of course, we know, and they knew, God has always been more focused on the condition of one's heart than in the keeping of feasts and the offering of incense. Earlier in chapter 29, Isaiah declares These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. It's not surprising that Jesus quoted this very passage in describing the condition of the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 15. Today, it could be characterized by saying the right words, following the liturgy perfectly, but still living with an unrepentant heart. And I think this is the point for us to consider this evening. How are we giving God our hearts and not lip service? Now, I have no doubt that we are all keeping ourselves from sacrificing our children in the fires built for pagan gods. I don't see us as having the same external issues as ancient Israel, but I know we still struggle with the issue of the heart. We still struggle with turning a blind eye to the suffering of others as long as we continue to keep our bank accounts and our retirement accounts growing. We strive for the protection of those who fit our idea of worthy and upright while leaving those on the margins right where they are. We weep when one of our own is left behind and wounded, but shed not a tear when those people get what's coming to them. And what of our Lord's words to us in the gospel Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward when you're with your Father who is in heaven. Jesus warns us of the same dangers of true and false worship that Isaiah speaks of. Jesus teaches us that our worship and acts of righteousness are only as acceptable as they are authentic coming from a heart yearning for repentance and restoration, and not from a heart full of pride and self-deception. It's not only the outward form that is of value, it is more the inward disposition of the heart that is of value in God's economy. So for this evening, as we begin Lent, as we take the next 40 days, how can we align our hearts during Lent, to work towards reaching the other? How can we pursue justice for those who are oppressed and exploited, even if it means going outside of our comfort zone, if it means reaching out to those that don't look like us, that don't sound like us, that don't smell like us? Those who aren't worthy, those who aren't upright, How can we give ourselves over to God during this time and make space for him to speak to us and how we can participate in all saints vision to reach the nations that have been brought to our door? Where is God calling us to give more of our time, talent, and treasure to his mission? For in doing so, our light shall break forth as the dawn. We shall call on the Lord and he will answer. And we shall be like a water garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.